Welcome to the Yoga Hour, offering insights and practices for spiritually conscious living in today's world. Here is your host, Dr. Laurel Trujillo. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, where we talk about yoga in all its depth and breadth as a path to spiritually conscious, fulfilled living in today's world. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the show. Today, my guest is Nancy Slonum Arany, and we will be talking about how writing about our life events, writing through where we have been, can provide a pathway to deep understanding, profound healing, and unexpected joy. Nancy Slonum Arany is the author of Writing from the Heart, and also the book we are going to be discussing today, Memoir as Medicine. She has been a regular contributor to National Public Radio's All Things Considered. She was recognized for excellence in teaching all three years she taught at Harvard University for Robert Coles. Nancy Arany has joined with physicians and writers from Columbia University's program in narrative medicine to lead workshops using her writing from the heart. Her website is chillmarkwritingworkshop.com. Chillmark is C-H-I-L-M-A-R-K, chillmarkwritingworkshop.com. You can follow her on Facebook at Nancy Arany, and Arany is A-R-O-N-I-E and on Instagram at Nancy Jill Arany. We will have these links on our website, theyogahour.com. Welcome to the Yoga Hour, Nancy Slonum Arany. I'm delighted you could join me today to talk about writing. I'm delighted back. All right. Um, Before we dive into our conversation about how writing about our life can bring magic and healing, Let's begin with a moment of present moment awareness. Let's just be right here now. So let's begin by bringing our attention to our body in space, wherever we are, whatever we're doing, just feeling our body. And in particular, feeling the surfaces that support our weight, whether we're standing, sitting, walking, just feeling where our body's weight is supported by a surface. And then turning our attention to the breath and just noticing as we take a fully conscious breath on the next inhale and exhale. On the next inhale, feeling the cool air in the nostrils. And on the exhale, feeling the warm air flowing out. And then just staying with our breathing, not trying to change the natural flow, but just noticing. Here's a quote, something to contemplate from Yogacharya O'Brien, the founder and spiritual director of the Yoga Hour from her book, Living for the Sake of the Soul. Self-knowledge is the shelter for every storm. It brings peace where there is provocation, joy where there is sorrow, and clarity where there was once confusion. Conditions are always changing, but they occur or arise on the ground of being. 
which is unchanging. Remember who you really are, that changeless reality. Conditions are always changing, but they occur or arise on the ground of being, which is unchanging. Remember who you really are, that changeless reality. So once again, Nancy Slonim Arany, welcome to the Yoga Hour. I'm really delighted to have a chance to talk with you about your book, Memoir is Medicine, and I wanted to share the subtitle as well, The Healing Power of Writing Your Messy, Imperfect, Unruly, But Gorgeously Yours Life Story. As a retired physician, I was really interested in this idea of about memoir as medicine. I uh, personally have found writing to be very helpful in my own life. And I really wanted to have you on to talk with listeners or encourage listeners to write as part of the yoga practice of self-study. Writing my about my experience has helped me to see things about my life that weren't initially obvious to me, which is pretty much what you talk about in your book. This is was reflected for me in the blurb on the cover of your book from actor Tony Shaloub. He wrote, wrote about your book, reconnects us to our own personal quest for purpose, truth, and meaning. I wanted to ask you, why did you write this book at this time? Oh, boy. Um, first of all, that was beautiful the way you opened this. And I love the fact that you're a doctor. Can I talk to you about a few? No, I'm just <laughs> Sure. <laughs> it's really bothering me. Okay. So the lightweight answer is that after the first book, I had a ton of prompts. And after the workshop, which um, is probably the most powerful, beautiful experience that I've had the privilege over the years of doing, People always say on the last day, but, but what are we going to do tomorrow? You've got to give us some more prompts. So I knew that I, I needed to write another book with, with new prompts and that that would, that would be something that I wanted to do. But really, the, that was the lightweight answer. The real answer is my son, Dan, um, got diabetes when he was nine months old, mm. the youngest diabetic in medical history at the time. Mm. There was no web TV. There was no Google. There was no, the doctors were absolutely, they didn't know what to do. We froze, my husband and I froze. And we did just about everything wrong you could possibly do with a chronically ill child um, with no information and terror. And we basically gave him the message, you're broken. What can we do to make your life easier? And I think what that did for him was make him a very angry young man because the world didn't care if he had diabetes or not. He got into the world and he still had to be work at work at five o'clock. And if he got there at 520, he couldn't say, well, I'm a diabetic. I couldn't get here on time. So we gave him a really bad, a very inconsistent message about, you know, you're damaged and you're never going to be able to do it on your own. And what can we do to make life easier for you? Right. Don't blame him for being angry. We did a little shrinkage, but even the, even the shrinks at the time didn't know what to do with this. Then at 22, he got MS. And this was an opportunity 
for us to do this better. Mm. What we did do was the same thing. I was the fixer. I was going to do anything to make his life easier. I was a control freak. I did every, I, I found, I read, I bought, I gave him pills. I gave him rolfing. I gave everything I could find. And a friend of mine, after some years said, your pain is so great. Dan doesn't have room for his own. Well, that wasn't a stake in my heart. And I said, so what am I supposed to do? And he said, pretend you've never met Dan. Mm enormous, brilliant gift. So when I could do that, when I could affect that kind of stance, it was incredible because I could treat him like a guy I met on the train who's struggling. I could meet him like he was the son of a good friend of mine and she couldn't handle it, but I could. And I would end up being his equal and the two of us would be dynamic and adorable and really have a great relationship. But most of the time I was uh, a mother who had a sick kid yeah. and that was my role. And he was only too happy to find his role and stay in it as sick child. So that, that was really what we did for years. He was sick for 16 years. Mm. The reason I knew I had to write the book is because ultimately we figured a way with lots of help books, people to do this differently. And I know what we did was different. I had, I had read Carolyn Mace's um, Anatomy of the Spirit. And there was a chapter on sacred contracts. And I remember I was reading that chapter when I got the call from the doctor in Colorado saying your son had a stroke, that they thought it was a stroke, but then they knew it was MS. The chapter, basically the way I envisioned it was uh, you're in your cloud with your angel. I'm in my cloud with my angel. And she says to me, what do you want to learn in your next lifetime? Now, this is all assuming you believe in reincarnation. I'm married to a scientist. He doesn't roll his eyes anymore. He knows that I'm not going to the Institute of Living and being committed as an insane person, but he's not on the same page in this area, but he respects, he's, in, he's, he's beautiful about it. So, so I said to, to the angel, um, I've been a control freak for billions of lifetimes and I'm sick of it. And she said, okay, and Dan, what do you want to learn in your next lifetime? And Dan said, I've been a victim for millions of lifetimes and I'm tired of it. I don't want to do this anymore. And she said, Ooh, have I got a lifetime for you too? So one of you is going to be the mom and one of you is going to be the kid. The kid's going to get a disease and then mom won't get it. And then the kid's going to get a second disease and mom's going to have an opportunity to grow and to learn. Your souls have made this sacred contract many, many, many lifetimes before, and you will be teachers for each other. Now, who wants to do what? The mom's going to have it tough, but the kid's going to have it tougher. And Dan said, I'll be the kid. I have to have a tissue when I think of that. Yeah, yeah. So then our angel kicks us out of the cloud. And as we're tumbling to earth, she goes, Oh, and you're not going to remember any of this. <laughs> so, of course, I didn't remember the first several years of his life. But when I read that, it wasn't my brain who remembered. It was my gut. Mm. It felt absolutely correct. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I knew that's what that's why he had been difficult. I knew that's why I needed to do more work. Mm -hmm. It's why I was his student. 
mm-hmm. why he was blind. Wow. So basically, that's why I uh, I wrote the book because I know what we ended up doing was really, really beautiful. Yeah. And powerful. I really appreciated how you began the book. I'm going to read a little bit from the uh, from uh, from the beginning. You said you wrote no shrinks, no pharmaceuticals, no comforting friendships, no exceptional, no exceptional partner like the one I have could come close to what writing my memoir did for my broken heart. Getting my rage, my terror and my insights onto the page, looking at my marriage through an emotional microscope, seeing my strengths, acknowledging my weaknesses, knowing what work on myself I still had to do, realizing how I had been held hostage. This was just what the doctor ordered. Only I found out that I was the doctor. <laughs> and then a little bit later you write that the biggest healing and the mo- and the biggest teaching, the most surprising thing, I would not have known how exquisitely beautiful the whole trip was. That's how I know writing is medicine. I just love that. I absolutely love all of the things that you write about learning and how, you know, it's all exquisitely beautiful and how how much your writing helped with that. So would you say a little bit more about that? How is writing healing? I think for this, finding the balance from thinking, oh my God, this is the worst thing that ever happened to me. And being able to pull back and have a larger frame for the story. You know, Ram Dass, my teacher, um, told the story of a guy who has a painting uh, of a sunset. And most of the painting is blah, gray, very depressing. But in the right-hand corner, there's a swath of magenta that is so vibrant and so alive. And he brings it to the framer and uh, he goes back a couple of weeks later and the framer says, you know, I didn't have a frame big enough, so I had to fold over that pink thing. What I learned was that I'm not in charge of my kid getting diabetes. I'm not in charge of my kid getting MS. You're not in charge of your husband dying. You're not in charge of your kid getting cancer. You're not in charge of your husband walking out the door. You're not in charge of anything, but you are in charge of the size of your frame. And when I pushed out the frame, And I stood in a different place because you also can't stand in the same place and see the same perspective. When I stood in another place, I saw how beautiful, what, what a privilege it turned out to be that my priorities from going, thinking that going to brunch at a famous person's house on the vineyard was the most important thing in my life to finding out that being with a sick person and learning about myself and being able to balance the brilliance and the beauty with the horror and the sorrow was the work that I came here to do. And so I had to write about it. And so I did. Yeah. Yeah. Well, it's a, it's a lovely book and I wanted to describe it just a little bit more for readers. So you have these short chapters, three, four or five pages. And then at the end you have, you know, prompts, um, and I, I looked up the number because I wanted to be able to say it. So there's 69 different chapters in the book. And it's not that long of a book. I don't want to scare people off. But what's so great about them is there are all these different ideas about something to write about, which I think is just great. And I think uh, it, I certainly found it inspiring. Um, one of the assistant producers and I were talking just before you came on the show about how um, we both were inspired, you know, by by um, by reading 
the book and by these prompts is just to get you to think. Um, <clears throat> you have led writing workshops now for a number of years where you encourage people and have gotten people to actually write about difficult things in their life. So what have you witnessed? Give us um, a, a story or two about, you know, what you've witnessed as part of that process about what people get out of, out of writing. Everything, everything. There was a long time ago, uh, a kid, 17 year old kid who came into the workshop and he wrote about how his mother was pregnant when his father died in a plane crash and he was 14. And he, she sent him to boarding school immediately. Nobody did any grieving, nobody had any ritual. All of a sudden he had no father and really no home and really no mother and he's in a boarding school. And when he would come home, his mother ended up marrying someone with three other kids. So not only did he lose mother, father, his home, but he lost his bedroom. Mm -hmm. And he wrote beautifully. I mean, there were 14 women in that, in that group and one kid, one guy, him. And of course we all mothered him and fell that it happens anyway. When there's a, when there's a guy, everybody like heals the guy. Because there's only like one or two men that ever take it. But he just was given so much nourishment and he was heard. And we all told him, go back to school and, and, and write for your paper, which he did. About a year later, he called me on the phone. He said, I'm coming with my grandmother and my mother. So they came, three of them. And the first day he wrote similarly to what he had written originally about feeling abandoned. And the mother came up to me at the break I do a hot bread and jam break at the end. And she said, I had, sobbing, I had no idea. I had no idea, I was so lost. The next day, the grandmother came up to me and said, my daughter's funny. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. <laughs> After the mother came up to me and said, I never knew that my mother was this smart. Wow. The fourth, it's only four mornings. The fourth day, the three of them encircled me and said, you have no idea what you have done for this family. And that's what I get all the time. Mm -hmm. There was another one where a couple came in. I'm allowed to tell these, by the way, because I ask, am I allowed to tell your story without names? This couple came in and they said, you know, when we signed up, we were having struggles in our marriage, but now we're going to get a divorce. So we really want to drop out. We don't, you know, you can have the money, but we don't really think we should take it. And I went, no, 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 no. This isn't about <laughs> therapy, but it's therapeutic for you to write your story. So please don't drop out. And they didn't. And what happened was so many people loved the guy and wrote, and, and listened and made comments about his writing and he was vulnerable and he was nice and he was kind. And at the end of the week, she came up to me and she said, okay, I have re-fallen in love with him. I got to see him the way I saw him when I first married him. Oh, wow. And again, how can I thank him? So I usually say Twizzlers, a bag of Twizzlers would be fine. That would do it. Um, anyway, it's, it's been thrilling to see what another, another, about a 40 year old gal came in with her mom who was 65 or something. And she wrote about having an affair with a married man that she'd been since she was like 20. So this guy is still married. She's been with him. 
the mother gets up out of her seat, walks over, holds her daughter in her arms, oh. and says, I knew something. I knew there was a secret. I just now am so grateful that I know what it is because I thought it was something way worse. So it's a, it's a place where people feel safe enough to write the truth mm -hmm. and the truth heals. Yeah. You're not carrying the story in your pancreas anymore. You're not carrying it in your, in your, in your liver marinating. You get it onto the page out of your body. I know that that that's what works. And so I have over and over and over and over again. Yeah. One of your chapters is called why write. And I'm just going to read a little, a little bit of what you wrote there <clears throat> about your own, <clears throat> excuse me, your own writing, but the pain at least had meaning. I realized that nothing about my life was random. It was about growing my soul. Who knew there was such a thing as growing your soul? Life had nothing to do with destiny. It had everything to do with how I chose to react to the constantly changing circumstances. It had everything to do with learning to let go of control and learning how to be with what is. So beautiful. Um, you encourage people to write through their negative emotions. What do you, what do you mean by that? Well, if, if you keep pushing stuff away, it takes a lot of energy to push. Think about it. It takes much less en energy to embrace, to let stuff in. So because many people have been raised to not acknowledge when they're angry, when they're hurting, sorrow is not something <coughs> culturally Culturally, our, uh, we're terrified of sorrow. You got a pain, we got a pill for you. And so this is a place, this workshop and writing from the heart is a place where you can acknowledge this hurt, this broke me, this terrified me, this still terrifies me, this still makes weighs heavily on me, is a way to get through as opposed to deny and get numb and pretend everything's fine. And where does that go when you're pretending? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. When you're numb, uh, you're numb to everything. That means you're not going to go down the street and go, oh, look at that maple tree. Oh, my God, is that the most gorgeous? You're not going to get that awe because you're numb. You've shut down all the openings. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. One of the, as I mentioned, 69 chapters was on insights. And you write, I'm often asked why I write and why I encourage others to do the same. For me, it's to find out what I'm thinking, what I'm feeling, and where I'm stuck. If I get lucky, I get a new insight that might lead to some healing. In the chapter, you really encourage people to take our insights seriously. But what, what do you, can you say a little bit more about that? Why do you feel that's important to write about our insights? You know, I think everybody has them and you're brilliant for 10 minutes and then you're an asshole again, 20 minutes later. It's very hard to keep those flashes of brilliance, but if you write them, you can reread. Mm -hmm. So I've always known that I have a fabulous husband. Uh, I proposed to him, by the way, 57 years ago, we just had our 55th anniversary, which is a miracle unto itself. I knew that we were very different and Probably that was half the attraction, but I would say things to him and he didn't respond. So then I just say them louder and quicker and then he didn't say anything. And then I would be screaming them. So it, 
the just yesterday, listening to an old Ramdas tape, nineteen ninety one, he was talking about a friend who uh, is very linear, and that Ramdas pops all around, and I pop all around, and my husband is linear. He's a scientist, and I've known this, but hearing it again reminds me how. When I say something, instead of my jumping in, like, were you listening? Hello, are you there? That I have to remember to just let him process. Right. Because he's thoughtful. I'm not thoughtful. I'm impulsive. You say something, I say something back. Whether it's intelligent or whether it's right has no bearing on my response. My response is going to be immediate. I think this is another insight that in my family, you had to be quick, that you didn't have to be right. You had to be quick. And so I learned quick early on. So to, to read this, to hear Ramdas saying this thing about his friend who's linear and how he jumps all over the place to have an expectation that my husband should respond right away. I have to keep being reminded, mm -hmm. let this thing sink in and he right. will respond to you. Right. Calm down. So, <laughs> those kinds of insights, you know, I'll forget it Tuesday. Next, and then I'll remember it because I've written it down. Yeah, yes, for sure. <clears throat> when I was reading this, I was also thinking about um, this one experience that I had with writing that was so powerful. I was I was doing what they call automatic writing, which is when you don't really have anything in mind and you're just literally writing everything that comes into your you know into your mind. You're nodding <clears throat> for people who <laughs> who aren't watching the video, or just in, you know uh, listening to the audio. Um, anyway, so I was doing this automatic writing and all of a sudden I found myself writing, I am so unhappy. And honestly, I had no idea. Isn't that something? Okay. So, so I was telling myself something there, obviously, and I really didn't, I really didn't know what it was. And it turned out that I was really unhappy with, um, you know, with my work situation. It wasn't, I was not doing the work that I really felt that I had come here to do. So anyway, that started me more writing and more and, and getting into therapy and talking with somebody about what this was about. And it led to me being able to change my work life in a way that made it just so much more rewarding, you know, to me. So that's just a little testimonial, you know, that that you really can get insights from just being honest with yourself, just writing and, and, and it allows your unconscious part to tell your conscious part some really important things. That's just a brilliant story. And next time someone asks me about insights, I'm going to pretend I'm you. <laughs> you have my permission. <laughs> um, you, in that same chapter on insights, you write, uh, reading it, Googling, downloading it is not living it, but writing it helped me see it, that it is hard for me to close the books and trust my own instincts. Being present is advice I could read in a book, but finding out what's blocking me, I need to write that for myself. Another thing about insights, right? Um, did you have anything to add to that story? Well, you know, I, I remember when I first read Be Here Now, you know, in 1977, I was running 3.8 miles, but who's counting, in the woods. And <laughs> I was stunned by the book. It just was the first time I had ever heard of a now and I was, you know, the most important thing in my life then was wall-to-wall -wall carpeting. I had no values. I did not know who I was. And I'm running in the woods 
and I'm going, be here now, be here now. That is so cool. Oh my God, that is just so, be here, be in the present moment. I'm going to do that. From now on, I'm going to do be here now. I am going to live in the present moment. Wow, what an amazing concept. And all of a sudden, an acorn fell and hit me in the head. <laughs> and I went, oh, you can't just like, read about it. You actually have to be in the present moment. It's so fabulous. I just love this or whoever was up there. Very good one. <laughs> good one. Acorn on the head. <laughs> that is great. Uh, as a reminder, I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, host and producer of the Yoga Hour podcast. And today I'm here with Nancy Slonam Arany to discuss how writing about life events can bring magic and healing. We'll post links to her website, which is chillmarkwritingworkshop.com. And again, chillmark is C-H-I-L-M-A-R-K writingworkshop.com on our website, theyogahour.com. And again, the book we're discussing, such a great title, Memoir as Medicine. <clears throat> we welcome your comments and questions. You can contact us via that website, theyogahour.com, where you can also sign up for our mailing list. All right, Nancy, <clears throat> the hardest part of writing for me has always been getting started, which includes, by the way, when is there time? What, you know, when do I like kind of make, <laughs> make myself sit down and write? Um, what do I write about? Where to begin? And one of the things I love about your book is that you do have all these short chapters in <clears throat> such a variety of topic ideas and a prompt um, to really help with the writing process. What are some of the roadblocks you see that prevent people from writing? Well, I have to vacuum, don't I? I mean, look <laughs> at this mess. People are coming over. Um, and and I have to put some CBD oil on my shoulder because it really hurts. And that means I have to go to the store to get the CBD oil. Everybody has every single excuse in the world. And it, I remember somebody took the workshop one year and she had a major life-changing event in this four-day period. And the next year she invited me for dinner. And my husband and I go to this great house up the road. And she says, I have a surprise for you. I might, have, I might have written this in the book, I can't remember, but she took me down a beautiful winding path with these beautiful trees, arcing stars. And we get to this clearing and there is a writing studio that her husband has built her. Yeah. And uh, I, I remember on the way home, I said, I don't have a writing studio. <laughs> <laughs> and have to say, oh, that's why you're not writing. So you know what? You don't need a writing studio. That's right. Because then you have to build the writing studio, right? Then you have yeah, to make plans the and talk to the get the money to build the writing studio. So there are a million roadblocks, and you really have to ask your soul what you came here to do. And I remember um, a friend of mine who a Catholic friend who had the best education in the world. I wish I'd gone to Catholic school, but I was Jewish. He said the root because they learn Latin they learned the root word of discipline is disciple. So I say to myself often, do you want to be the disciple of your own soul? My soul came here to write. My ego came here to buy cashmere. So let's take care of the soul because it's yearning. Right. Soul yearns. Right. right. You'll always find a roadblock. You'll always have a reason not to write. Right. Once you do it, you feel so great. Then you say to yourself, why don't I do this every day? <clears throat> yeah. Why don't you? It's hard. Yeah. It's hard. Yeah. 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 
is there any particular advice? I know people are in the workshop, as you said, for four days, and then they then they go out and they were looking for prompts. So now they have your new book where they have all these prompts. What advice do you give them about you know, how to keep that writing practice going? Get into a group. Get into, even if it's just one partner, make a commitment. You're going to meet every Tuesday at seven o'clock or 7.30 or four o'clock in the morning, whatever you do, if you have somebody. It's a very uh, isolating job writing mm -hmm. it's it's uh it, you can really be alone and start to not want to do it anymore so if you're in a group of four five nine whatever i'm in a writing group now i never was before and it's fantastic because you have a commitment and you're really making that commitment to yourself mm -hmm. so i i suggest a, a writing partner or a writing group and meet regularly mm -hmm. you also talk about um about the way to listen to someone else's writing, um, that it you know that it is important first of all to listen you know and to and that is like a gift that we give to each other you know a gift of love to you know to listen to someone, and then um, the you know giving the positive feedback what you loved about what they about what they well, wrote. You know, I was in a uh, writing. I was invited probably forty years ago to be in the writing group in Hartford in my town. And I hung up the phone. I was so ecstatic that they had called me. They were all published. They were all fancy schmancy writers. I knew who they were. And to be included in this, you know, very prestigious group was thrilling. And I remember running around through the house going, oh my God, I have to lose 15 pounds by Tuesday. Excuse me, you do not have to be thin to be a writer. That was my little tiklach, my little issue. And then, oh my God, what does a writer wear? What am I gonna wear when I go? So anyway, we're black. And I got there because <laughs> writers wear black. Huh? That's right. That's right. These people were actually mean spirited. Oh. And I had a terrible experience there. The first week that I went, we have time because it's a great story, but it's long. We have time. Yeah. Okay. So the first week that I got there, uh, a pre-designated reader reads her piece stunning. It's absolutely beautiful. And when she finished reading, the first person who spoke said, you know, Harriet, I felt that your characters were really rather one-dimensional. I mean, I couldn't relate to them. <sighs> and then everyone in that circle told her something that was wrong with the piece. That just blew me away. I got a stomachache. And then there was this uh, food table and there was peach cobbler. Oh my God, it was so fabulous. And I glommed and I put on a phony smile because I knew these people weren't nice. And I left and I got home and my husband greeted me and said, so how was it? And I went, oh my God, the peach cobbler was fabulous. <laughs> okay, the writing. And I said, well, I said, the woman who wrote was great, but the people who responded not only were mean, but they were wrong. Mm. said so are you going back I said yes these are my mentors I'm going back mm. next week another woman reads her piece it's gorgeous great writing very intimidating for me actually and she finishes reading and the woman who responded first must have gone to the same surgeon to have her jaw wired shut because she said you know Gwen I really have to admire your perseverance I mean you just don't quit do you dear you just don't quit do you dear so that was like oh my god and and again my stomach twisted and i didn't say anything because i didn't want people to think i was some kind of little pollyanna 
And, um, and then there was this um, blueberry stuff. So after everybody made these negative remarks, um, like at the table eating the blueberry stuff that was delicious, the little wild Maine blueberry sweet, oh my God. And I'm, and I'm again being a phony because I, I knew these people were not, they were competitive and they weren't right. Mm -hmm. But I stayed and ate and left and I got home with blue teeth. <laughs> said, so how was it? And I said, these women, should have nothing to do with writing. If they write anything, it should be a cookbook because they're good with dessert, but they're not, they're not good with people. And he said, so are you going back? I said, yeah, I'm reading next time. He said, what, you're not nervous? I said, they're not gonna do it to the new person. Hmm. Laura, why didn't you call me and tell me not to go? <laughs> and, and, uh, and they did a job on me. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually took notes and I actually said, thank you. Oh, right. Oh, right. I hadn't thought of that. Oh my word. Yep. Yep. Uh huh. Pretending to agree with them. I read the best thing I'd ever written. I didn't bring anything iffy. I didn't bring anything I wasn't sure of. I did what didn't want help. I was going to show them how great I was. Oh my word. So they did a job on me. And then there was apple crisp. <laughs> <laughs> I was going to miss the apple crisp. So I, I took it in a paper plate, though. I don't like paper. I don't like eating off paper. And I don't I like eating with a plastic spoon. But I took everything. And I thanked them. And I got to the car. And I took a bite of the apple crisp. And I couldn't swallow. That mm. stuck in my throat, along with all the words that should have come out. Right. Right. And I couldn't write for a very... I tell the story a lot and sometimes I say two years and right now I don't even know how long it was, but I didn't write for a long time. Wow. No, I knew they were wrong. That's but right. you, you have a tendency to give your power over to people right. that sound authoritative. Right. You know, it sounded like they knew what they were talking about. <clears throat> my gut said they didn't. My heart said they didn't. But I, tr I, I believed them and I didn't write for a long time. And I yeah. finally, you know, started writing again. But when I started my workshop, I, the very first time I ever did it, I had taught college English and high school English, but I had never facilitated a group of writers. Mm -hmm. And guess what happened? The same thing. People mm -hmm. tore each other apart. They, they thought they were supposed to fix the stuff. Right. Right. I never heard to anyone to say that was beautiful. Right. They just thought their job was to make it better. Right. Oh, I, because I had never facilitated anything like that before, I just let it happen, but I was miserable. Right. And I remember we did a recital. I rented chairs. I invited people. They invited their families. I rented chairs. I remember it was a Sunday morning and my hands were so cold and I was so miserable and I wasn't connected to anybody ever again because I just knew I had failed miserably. And the thing ended, and I said, I'm never doing that again. I'm obviously not good at it. And uh, you know how you have like a little wise person living inside? Well, mm -hmm. she reared her lovely head and said, oh, yes, you're going to do it again. But you're going to figure out a way to do this correctly. Mm -hmm. And I put another little ad in the paper, writing workshop in my home. And people called me on the phone. And when they called, I said, do you know me? And if they said no, I said, oh, y'all come on down. Because I knew I was reinventing myself. And they came and 
I, I there were 10 people and I said, you know, I've only done this once and I failed miserably, but I learned something. Creativity requires safety. Mm-hmm. You will be safe here. I have one rule and that is when you finish reading, we will tell you what we loved. That's it. Right. And that's what I do to this day and that's what works. And it's not phony. I, had, I gave a talk one day in the library here and a guy raised his hand and he said, well, aren't you giving people false hope when you find the good stuff? And I went, no, I'm giving them cheerleading, which we all need. Right. And I'm reminding people of the gold they were able to write so that they can do more of it. Right. No, absolutely. Right. <clears throat> absolutely. And, and um, I have participated in a couple of sort of um, similar writing types of, uh, of gatherings. And that was the rule, you know, is it, you know, really was only, you know, what you loved about what was written. Because when I was asking you about sort of what are the blocks, what are the, what are the, the blocks to writing? I think that's gotta be a big one. You know, people are worried about, and particularly you say, well, writing a group, well, that's great. But if you're, you know, if you're at all concerned about how you're doing, then that's a huge barrier. I don't, you know, I don't want to share, you know, right. this, I don't want to share what I've written because out of just, you know, a fear of fear, we all feel of not being good enough or what have you. And, and wow. Universal. Yes. Yeah. Feel I'm not good enough. It's universal to compare yourself to everybody else. And, and everybody's had an uncle, a mother, a best friend, a teacher, a group that has told them they're nothing. Yeah. So to get over that tough, very tough. That's right. So I want to turn to another chapter, which was called Pay Attention to the Coincidences. And you shared a piece that you wrote that had aired on NPR in the 80s titled, The Signs Are Everywhere. You'll see them if you're looking and not talking. <laughs> it's a great story. So what, what do you want to share about that piece? Well, I'll share about that piece, but I also want to talk about coincidences. Um, yeah, I, I was in the car with my husband and I said, you know, I have a favor to ask of you. I know this is going to be hard for you because I know that you never criticize me and you always support me and everything. But, you know, I talk a lot. And when we're at a party, I know that I'm the one that's talking because I'm a great storyteller and I'm really good at it. And I don't think I want to do that anymore. And I really just don't want to always be the one talking. And I just need you to like, look across the room and give me some kind of hint. Like it's enough already. It's enough, but be kind. I don't want it to be a mean thing. I just want you to. <laughs> and I look and there's a Mexican restaurant and the name of it is Boca Grande. <laughs> <laughs> Which means big mouth. Yes. Yeah. No. I was hysterical and I just looked up and went, thank you very much. Um, but, but it felt like it worked, but it was a, a momentary piece of brilliance. But about coincidence, I was just talking to a girlfriend yesterday and I said, uh, what do you think about coincidence? And she said, I think where there's so much chaos in our world that this shows that there is some semblance of order. And I said, and I'm the opposite. I feel like it's the magic of disparate things coming together, reminding you that there is a mystery and there is perfection and there is this larger than we can explain energy that wants you to pay attention and say, wow, return to awe. 
I do not like when people say awesome. Oh, we had an awesome dinner. Oh, there was, I met this guy. He's so awesome. I don't like that because awe is like, you can't even speak. Mm -hmm. So the coincidence reminds me of awe. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And that magical, that magical edge that sometimes we feel like we get to touch, you know, that magical edge and, of course, for us, you know, that's yoga, that's, you know, yoga's oneness, unity, that, you know, we're all uh, manifestations of this one huge, you know, creative power, and that we're all here, you know, to wake up, we're spiritual beings having a human experience rather than human beings having you. a spiritual experience. <laughs> all the time, and it's just to have somebody, well, I was listening to Ram Dass the other day, and he talked about, he said, um, I am just a rent a mouth. I am here to tell you what you already know. How do I know that you already know it? Because I say these wise, insightful things and you all nod because you already know. (laughs) We come together to remind each other that we're trying to awaken. Right. And it was just, it was just exactly because you want to hang out with people that are on the same, I mean, everybody's on the same path, but when your language, when, when you just said awaken, it just made me so happy because I, I sometimes feel very, I don't want to be the teacher. Mm -hmm. I want to be the student. Mm -hmm. I want to be either with like-minded students that are trying to get awake and stop falling asleep for long decades so just now when you said that, it just made me so happy. <laughs> oh, good. <laughs> okay, another chapter that inspired me was called Solitude, um, which I think is a, if I think our relationship to solitude is really interesting. So why did you choose that as a topic? Well, number one, I never thought solitude was important until I got very busy. And I also never thought solitude was important until I got stoned for the first time. When I started smoking cannabis, marijuana, weed, I don't know what we call it these days. But for the first time, I dropped out of my head into my heart and I wanted to have time alone to listen to my own self. And I had never had solitude because it felt lonely to me. Solitude was, oh, nobody's calling. Oh, nobody cares. All of a sudden, solitude was where I absolutely went deeper and deeper and deeper and heard myself and knew what I had to work on and knew where I was stuck. And, and not that it changes you. Awareness is one thing. Making the switch is the hardest part. But the awareness can't come if you're constantly going and going. I mean, when you said, you know, we're, we're beings having a human experience, we're a human being, whatever you said, it was good. So Ann Patchett, I've just been uh, listening to on, on tape. You know who she is, right? Yes. Yeah, yeah. Author. Yeah. Uh, the one of the things she wrote a book about Lucy, her best friend, yes. the one who wrote, uh, was it autobiography of a face, the one who had cancer of the face. And right. she wrote this great book and they became best friends. And they, they asked her why she wrote about Lucy. And she said she wanted to put her on the, in the pages of a book, the way you do a maple leaf Mm -hmm. to keep her alive. Mm -hmm. And I thought about that with Dan and that isn't, I wasn't trying to keep Dan alive. Dan's alive. You know, he's still my teacher all the time, 
So I, but I loved the phrase and she booked herself into the Bel Air hotel so that she could be alone and have solitude. And I think there are a lot of people that in order to have that quiet, they have to run away. I used to go to um, Insight Meditation Society for a 10 day silent retreat, me silent. But by the third day, I thought I'm never leaving. This is this, I'm desperate for this. So I know what I get out of quiet and you can get very, very busy and forget that solitude feeds your soul and the soul needs a meal now and again. Mm-hmm. No, absolutely. You said that well. As I mentioned, at the end of each chapter, there's a writing prompt. And I thought the writing prompt that you give for writing about solitude was particularly timely. Now that, you know, the this um, solitude, mandated solitude that we had during the pandemic, during the COVID-19 pandemic is coming to a close. I don't know. I think it maybe varies in different parts of the country, but your writing prompt was, is write a short piece on what you feel about solitude and about how it felt or might feel to return to the social world. I think that's such a great thing to write about at the moment um, because I kind of still feel that I have pandemic brain. Like I just, I was talking about this with my husband. I, I kind of feel like we don't make the plans or we haven't for a while made the plans that we used to make just because it's kind of in our, in our mind that, you know, we're, we're, you know, we're kind of into this groove of just kind of being on our own in our house, which we're just kind of breaking out of and, you know, and planning a, a, a couple of upcoming trips. But is there anything that you wanted to say about that prompt about, uh, about how it feels or might feel to return to the social world and how that's an important thing for us to look at at, the, at this moment? You know, everybody, as you said, had very different experiences during COVID. And I loved it. I mean, it's terrible to say because there were so many people suffering, but I had never, first of all, my husband didn't go to work. So he was here, he commutes. So often he's in Concord, Massachusetts. So he leaves uh, Monday morning, comes back Thursday night. This was a year and a half of his being here. And it was, we fell into a routine of walking. The, the trails here are unbelievable. Nobody called, nobody showed up spontaneously. Nobody needed to stay with us. I was absolutely the, probably the happiest ever. Then it, sort of tapered off and we got thrown right back into social thing and I'm busier than ever. I've loved it, but I'm not in need of another pandemic. God should only forbid, but I don't know how to impose that. I don't know how to say no. I don't know. How, I love the people that invite us and I love having people over. So it's going to be very, very hard. It has been this summer because it got pretty crazed. Everybody comes out of the woodwork if you live on Martha's Vineyard. Well, we were wondering what you guys were doing Labor Day. Do you have an extra bed? Yes. So people have been coming in droves and it's been great. I think we're the only ones that I know that haven't gotten COVID yet. We've been careful, but not rigidly careful. But every, absolutely everybody has a different experience. There are people that are, that quit their jobs, people who are staying home, people who got into a depression. I mean, shrinks. I have so many therapist friends that said busier than ever. Mm. People just did not know how to do solitude. And they also lived in fear uh, because there was so much fearful news. Right. So I, I just think a balance, once again, balance is what it's about. If you can just be the quiet and you can have the partying in some kind of balance, you've, you've got, you've got it. Mm-hmm. 
For listeners who have been inspired by our conversation and want to perhaps sit down and write, what would be a bit of advice for them that you would give? Well, go through that book and pick, you know, you don't have to go in order. The book is not a novel. So you can open it randomly like Women Who Run With The Wolves. Did you remember that book? No. (laughs) Paula Estes, many years ago, it was the book, fat, fat book of a bunch of stories. And I tried to read it from beginning to end. And my sister said, no, 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 don't even try that. Just open it randomly. And it just happened that my husband was having a lot of trouble with my tears. And uh, I was trying to teach him he doesn't have to fix anything, that the tears are, you know, healing. And I opened that book randomly. And the chapter was, welcome to the Scar Clan. Tears are like a river that lift your boat off the rocks. Tears Mm. someplace. I know. So beautiful. Um, open the book, mine or Clarissa Pinkola Estes, Women Who Run With The Wolves, and pick one of the prompts and just get going. And don't try to write my life. Don't write your life. It's too huge. Don't write. Don't start. And I was born in such and such a place. And my mother, don't do that. You need a specific, very narrow prompt that will get you going. There's no prompt in that book that does not, that isn't provocative for you. Mm-hmm. All right. That's okay. great. Unbelievably, we've come to the close of the show. <clears throat> and in closing, what words of inspiration or encouragement would you like to share with our listeners? Read, 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 read everything. Read what you can get your hands on. Read, um, write without worrying about anybody reading it. Write for yourself. There is no reader. There's just you. Get the stuff out of your stomach, out of your heart, out of your liver, out of your pancreas. It is marinating in there. You have secrets and mysteries and stuff you've never told anybody before. Nobody's going to see it. Mm. Read, write, get the stuff out, get the rage on the page. Be in a group, read. Hmm. Beautiful. I book, particularly. <laughs> For listeners, you've been listening to The Yoga Hour. It's been my pleasure to share this time with you. I'm Dr. Laurel Trujillo, producer and host of the show. My guest today has been Nancy Slonum Arany. She is the author of uh, the book we've been discussing today, Memoir as Medicine. And I'm going to read your wonderful subtitle again, The Healing Power of Writing Your Messy, Imperfect, Unruly, But Gorgeously Yours Life Story. Um, her website is uh, chillmarkwritingworkshop.com, so you can find out more about her there. A link to that website will be posted on our website, theyogahour.com. Thank you so much, Nancy, for joining me today on the show. You are a pleasure and a gift. Thank you. For listeners, we hope you'll join us for the many online programs offered by the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment. Currently, there's daily online meditation in the morning from 6.30 to 7.30 a.m. That's Pacific time in the afternoon at 4 p.m. And then Monday evenings at 7.30. All those times are Pacific time. CSE also offers a Sunday satsang. A satsang is a gathering of truth seekers at 10 a.m. each week. Yogacharya O'Brien will be returning from her summer sabbatical on Sunday, September 11th, 2022. So you might want to check out that Sunday satsang in particular. Join us next time on the Yoga Hour when I will be joined by guest Acharya Shunya, who is a Vedic teacher and author of the book Roar Like a Goddess. 
This will be part two of our conversation discussing the goddess qualities within each of us as we step into our innate divinity. The Yoga Hour is a service project for the Center for Spiritual Enlightenment, a meditation center in the Kriya Yoga tradition. Remember, you can subscribe to the show, and if you're enjoying the show, share it with a friend. Thank you to the Yoga Hour team, founder and spiritual director, Yogacharya Ellen Grace O'Brien, assistant producers, Anne Hayes, Mickey Coronado, and Christine Sote. I look forward to being with you again. Until then, remember, you carry your own healing and wholeness within you. Share your peace and joy with all you meet. Bye now. <laughs>